Hi, I'm David Dalal, and I beat the often path by keeping weather from entering your house. Welcome back to the Beat the Often Path podcast. I'm your host, Ross Palmer. This is the show where we find inspiring solutions to the problems that plague us all to help us live our lives and careers in a more meaningful way. Joining me today is David Dalal, the co-founder and CEO of Flow Inc., a clean tech startup developing a smart solution to prevent the extensive, costly water damage caused by ice buildup on buildings' roofs in the winter. You know what I love? I love learning about amazing solutions to problems that I never knew existed, such as the fact that $9.5 billion in damage occurs due to ice on rooftops each year in the United States alone. Not only that, de-icing as an entire industry is archaic, harmful, and wasteful, meaning that it is a huge sector just ripe for eco-disruption. David recently made the Forbes 30 under 30 list, and his idea was conceived in MIT and perfected at Yale. So I'm looking forward to a great conversation with an extremely smart dude. Here's David Dalal of Flow Inc. Well, David, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. You've created a product called FlowSafe, right? Exactly. So for me, I'm something of an amateur rapper. A lot of people don't know this about me, but I keep my best rhymes in my FlowSafe. Just kidding. Oh, my God. I can't even make a joke anymore. Ever since I became a dad, I can't make a joke. I'm so sorry. Everybody listening and watching, I apologize. I was truly, truly, truly awful. All right. Describe me the problem. Get away from this awkward moment as quickly as we can. What is it that you make? How did you make it? Why did you make it? For sure. So what we're doing is a problem that a lot of folks might not know if you live in Texas or in California. But essentially in the winter, what happens is snow falls onto everyone's homes and everyone's buildings, but 90% of buildings are under-insulated and under-ventilated. And so what that means is that heat rising out of the building is going to heat the top of the roof and start to melt all that snow on top of the roof itself. But the snow on that edge of that roof or that overhang or that eave freezes over and forms a block of ice. And so any melted snow, snow water that's trickling down the roof is going to pull up behind that block of ice and you can't go into the gutters, into the downspouts and get discharged off the roof. And so it'll go under the building machine, the, under the building materials and shingles, enter the building, can cause tens of thousands of dollars in water damage. And so it's a problem a lot of folks might not know about. But if you're up here in the Northeast, you're out in the Rockies, you're all too familiar with it, unfortunately. And so this started off as a class project actually back when I was an undergrad at MIT. And some folks in, on my team in this capstone engineering class had always dealt with this problem, and we wondered, can we make a better solution? And so lo and behold, a few years later, we're really moving full steam forward on trying to get a new solution into the market. So would you say I had encountered this solution? I mean, forgive me if, in case I expose something truly awful, but you have this kind of vision of somebody being crushed by a 10-ton block of ice or somebody's grandmother being crushed by a slab of ice, and that was the origin story, if you will, of this product. How <laughs> I hope that that's not the case. How did this become a personal issue for you or your teammates? Yeah, so it's, it's actually less of... An ice problem, the ice is actually still a problem. So you might see like, for instance, like when you go skiing, you might see like those like big icicles that are hanging off the side of the right. roof. It's going to stab part of you ice through dam. the heart. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, the, the actual, the bigger problem though, is actually the water that's built up behind that block of ice. So you might not think about that block, block of ice holding a bunch of water behind it, like a dam. And that mm. water penetrating inside that building, again, can like destroy people's like interior homes, uh, like destroy your furniture, destroy your your computer destroy like really everything you own because just you have, you have your roof leaking in the middle of the winter. 
And so a few of these folks in this team originally had dealt with this problem numerous times where they started seeing water coming in through their ceilings, coming in through their walls, like having mildew and mold and really things escalating out of control. And we wondered, is there just a better solution to tackle this right now? Sure. So the last horrible dad joke that I'm going to make of this episode, I promise, is if an ice dam is made out of ice, what is a beaver dam made out of? Um, I'm just, you know what? I, I, yeah, I don't know where my brain is at today. I am just, I'm genuinely sorry. That's it. I'm done. I'm done with the jokes. I promise. That's the end of it. Okay. So there's holding a lot of water and it's a big problem. And as we know from your website, it causes $9.5 billion in damage. Is that yearly? Is that in the United States? Where is this damage being caused? And is that a global figure? Yeah. So the $9.5 billion is just in the U.S. annually each year, actually. And okay. so it's a significant problem across the board. So I'm actually finishing up my PhD right now at Yale. And Yale has this 400 buildings on campus. And basically every single one of them deals with ice dam damage in the winter. And they spend like a million dollars a year on trying to solve that problem. And one million dollars a year? Dang. It's crazy. Yeah. That is crazy. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Uh, okay. So was it, was it an easy sell on the campus to say we need to implement this right away? or? So I think the first piece is that everything that is related to hardware, especially to climate tech and to anything that has to do with weather resilience, the first question is, does it work? Because the value prop is there. People understand the issue and how much they're spending. The question is, does the technology actually do what you say it's going to do? And so we spent the last few years trying to answer that question. And I would say in the last few months, we finally reached a definitive yes, which has been pretty exciting. That's fascinating. How long did that process take you? It took like four and a half years. Um, four and a half we, years. Yeah, yeah, it took a very long time. And there's a number of reasons why that is. One, it's you can really only test this in the winter. And so uh, once you miss the winter season, you're all back at it again. COVID was a big issue there. And then ultimately, we, we started this in lab tests at MIT and some cold chambers there. And then we actually did some testing with the U.S. Army as well. They actually have, as part of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, they have a cold regions research engineering laboratory, which you might never have heard of, but uh, specializes essentially in ice and snow. And so did a bunch of tests with them. And then last winter, we did a 50-unit paid pilot across the country in 10 different states to really just fully get this out there, see how it works. And we got some great results across the board. That's amazing. So how was the reaction? What did people say to it? They loved it. Uh, it really was a great reaction across the board. And we were testing this on everything from single family homes to 100,000 square foot Amazon warehouse and everything in between. And we really got some great results across the board where folks said, like, I've always been trying to solve this problem and I've never really come up with a good solution. Like we have photos of folks on those roofs in previous years, literally like in Aspen, like holding onto a rope for dear life, five stories above the ground, not tie it in, just like holding a rope, like holding a hammer, just like banging against the roof, trying to get this ice uh, off the roof. My God. You know, you're calling to mind these visions. I grew up in Colorado and I remember taking the chairlift and you would have these people who had some kind of heater system installed in their roof that would heat a pattern in their roof, uh, exactly. a message to the people on the chairlift. That was my first indication of something like this. Was there a previous solution like that that used water or hot water? before your solution came yeah, so to the, be? The, the two key solutions right now on the market are, one is called heat tape, which is exactly what you're discussing, which is basically just a heating filament that heats up and tries to melt the ice and snow on the roof. Um, the issue with that is that it's really expensive, and so you're just burning electricity all winter long. It's really bad for the environment for that reason. It's actually one of the largest energy hogs in a lot of cold states like Colorado and Utah really? and Maine. They just have major burns for, for heating cables. They're also actually really unsafe. They can cause building fires and roof fires. And so a lot of folks don't choose to adopt them for that reason. 
And the alternative is essentially you get guys to climb onto the roof in the middle of the winter and try to steam off with like essentially like these like massive engines or scrape off the ice in some way. But uh, there's a lot of like a hair dryer. Exactly. <laughs> Just, you know, a large hair dryer. If exactly. you have enough hours, you can get exactly. through it all. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, so, all right. So, yeah, go ahead. Solutions. No, okay. no, go ahead. Go ahead. So yeah, there are a lot of solutions, but they're dangerous, costly, all of that. And and again, exactly. one of the things that I love about doing this show is that I love just figuring out how ignorant I am and what I don't know. And I love coming across an entire category of a problem that I had no idea existed. I mean, sort of anecdotally, you remember, oh yes, I remember icicles and all those cold plates. I remember dealing with that. But you don't, it doesn't occur to somebody like me that that could be a problem that could be solved or that I should solve it or that it's causing X billion dollars of damage. So how in your program did you realize that this was the idea that you wanted to dedicate your time and energy to of seemingly infinite other ideas out there? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. It was not something that I ever thought that I would be interested in or want to go about solving. But I think just diving deeper into the industry, to your point, there's just industries out there you just have no idea exists and problems out there you have no idea are a real major pain point for somebody. But Doing this research, like we, for instance, very early days, we just wanted to see like, what is customer sentiment out there? Like, can we get some units just on some roofs just to see how things work? And so I found all these like small Vermont and New Hampshire towns, which were close to Boston where I was living at the time. And I sent just like a few emails off at like three o'clock in the morning, um, not really expecting much of these like listservs. And they had maybe like four or 5,000 people on them, not very large. And they finally got approved at 9 a.m. And by 11 a.m., I had 55 calls and emails saying, I need to talk to you. I need to buy this product. And so that was like an initial indication that, wow, there's actually real market demand here. And this is a real problem that I have the capabilities and a product that can really touch on these people's lives in a significant way. And like we had stories about people going broke because of ice stamps. We had stories of people throwing out their back because of ice stamps, people that have surgery because of ice stamps. It's people not falling, you'd ever expect. <laughs> letting yeah, go falling, of the rope. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, okay, so you got that validation and that proof of concept and the feedback before you had a product that was ready to sell or marketable, before you'd taken maybe even any steps towards actually solving the problem? Yeah, so as part of that class, part of it was trying to both develop the product, but as well as trying to validate, like, is there a market here? Is this something worth pursuing? And I was actually leading the business side of the team at the time to just understand, like, what is market demand? And then after that class, we already had developed an initial prototype but then the big question is, like, does this work? Like, can this work in a real world environment? And that was the question that really led us into all this lab testing and ultimately these pilot tests as well. So in a, in a school environment, it's easy to understand how you can, and I use this term not in a derogatory way, burn a couple years of your life while not yeah. making sort of, pro whereas in the real world, quote unquote, four years to develop a product might have more financial consequences, et cetera. It's, it's a tougher sell. So I'm fascinated what is the thing that pushes you forward or pulls you forward when you're just not getting it right away? When you say, I know this is possible, but it, I mean, four and a half years, that's a pretty long time to be banging your head against the wall with a single problem. So what was yeah. the motivation during the middle of that that kept you like, let's say two years in that you say, I know we can do this to fuel you for the next two years to actually get it done? Yeah. I think the first piece is just, you know, you never know how long it's going to you're going to be going at this. And so just saying like, we're just going to hit this next milestone and then we'll hit the next milestone after that, rather than saying like, I'm going to get into the, I think a lot of entrepreneurs, when they get into venture, they say like, I'm just going to hit this next milestone and we'll see where it gets us. I think mentally you should be prepared to dedicate five, 10 years of your life to this. But I think when you first dive in, you should just hit one milestone, hit the next, and then just see where things end up. 
But I think ultimately the motivation there is again the customer. Really, if you relink, relay, if you relate to the customer and remain customer focused and customer centric and keep your ear to the ground in that sense, where you can relate to them and really understand like how this is an issue to them, like how this really profoundly affects their lives. I think that really makes all the difference. Like you can inspire your team that way. You can inspire the folks around you. You can inspire your partners to really try to go out there and make their best effort to try to make a big difference in someone else's life. Right. So like your to-do list has one item on it for four years, get it to work. <laughs> Just unchecked. <laughs> but you've got these emails, you've got these calls. Uh, so you're using that feedback to constantly remind yourself of the importance of the issue that you're solving. Exactly. Exactly. Like we're not talking to customers one day and then essentially like walking away for four years, coming back and say, we're done. Aha, uh, yeah, we got it. <laughs> exactly. Like it's constant customer calls, customer validation, customer feedback. So really keeping you closer to the ground, getting their feedback, getting both the points that are constructive feedback where they might not like something you're doing and help you reinvent the product, re-envision it in some way, but also just that positive reinforcement as well where they just keep saying like, keep going at this, like you're really doing a great job. That I think also means a lot. Were there certain innovations or breakthroughs that you had that really tipped the scales and really made you feel like, okay, now we've got it? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think along the way for product development, we developed some novel Internet of Things technologies, which, which was really cool. And I think oh, really? that was a really point of validation. I think the biggest point of validation was once we actually finally got all these pilot installations installed in the middle of COVID, where we essentially did these, we had guys on the team doing 10 15,000 mile road trips where they're driving across the country to get these things set up. And just like once those things were installed and we like started actually getting data into our AWS backend and like started seeing all this data like show up on our dashboard. I think that was just a really cool experience to finally see this thing working on a real world scale and real world environment. That's just so fabulous. So now we got to get to the point of how does it actually work? What is broadly speaking, not giving anything ultra secret away, of course, but what is the method? For sure. So essentially what we do is we pull weather forecast data from the National Weather Service and some other locations as well online, as well as we have some IoT sensors on the unit itself. And so the system itself is extremely intelligent and we've developed proprietary algorithms internally to essentially analyze the weather to figure out when are ice dams forming or ice dams on the roof. And then from there, we essentially use a drip irrigation line similar to what you'd find for agriculture or for gardening that's installed on the eve of that roof without overhang. And then from there, when necessary, it pumps up using a small pump on the unit itself, a non-corrosive biodegradable pet and plant safety icing fluid that goes through this drip line and comes out in certain channels at essentially at given intervals when the system determines it's necessary. And it creates channels in the ice dam to allow the water to get discharged. So we're not actually trying to get rid of the entire ice dam. It's actually very good for insulation, actually. But mm -hmm. we're trying to create channels underneath the ice dam that allows that water and snow melt to get discharged rather than ending up inside the building. And it, it's, it's more channels underneath versus channels in parallel. It's not rivers through it. It's rivers underneath it. Exactly. It's rivers underneath it between the roof and the ice itself. And the ice by design, stays there. Exactly. Always. Mostly. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> because I would have thought that the goal would be to get rid of all of that ice or, or to prevent there being ice at all, right? So that's just clearly not the case. 
Yeah, yeah. It's a bit counterintuitive in a way. So you actually won't see those large icicles anymore because the reason why those large icicles form, if you look at them closely for a very long period of time, you'll essentially see water <laughs> trickling down you off the right. <laughs> you'll see water trickling down off the roof. And that's actually right. water coming from over the ice dam where essentially you have such a large pool of water on the roof that some of it will start to go over that ice and then start to trickle down and then that's how the icicles actually form. So you won't see that because there's no water there. So you'll still have a little bit of ice on the roof, but you won't see those massive icicles anymore. So would you say that this is something that pretty much every business is aware of? You mentioned Amazon, obviously. Every business operating in a cold climate. Is this a real cost that you think pretty much all of them have to deal with every year? Because I bet nobody saw that coming. Yeah, yeah. It's one of those issues that you don't expect. Like you think you need like your dashboards and your your back end, but you don't think about snow and ice removal. Right. And so, yeah, it's, it's a major problem for a lot of these folks. And there's also some really interesting adjacent verticals as well that we're thinking about in the future. Like this is not just an issue for buildings. It's an issue for all key infrastructure. So think of like roads, runways, train lines. They all have to deal with de-icing and snow removal. And it costs millions and millions of dollars each year to essentially do all these things retroactively where once it snows, you send guys out to salt the roads or to like shovel the snow. But there's no smart, intelligent solutions that are collecting real-time data and then responding to that accordingly autonomously. It's all done by essentially manual, manual intervention where these guys watch the weather and then respond accordingly. Yeah, I was going to say, you mentioned your your friend or colleague going on a road trip into these icy locations. And the first thought that came to my mind is that sounds like a very dicey endeavor. You're <laughs> driving deliberately towards the snow and ice. Um, so yeah, salt we know is very corrosive uh, in places like Colorado. I'm from these sand mixture or various other types of stuff that just destroys your car. So if yep. we were to build something like this out for roads and infrastructure, what would that actually look like? Would it be a continuous pipeline along the length of the road or how might that actually happen at scale? Yeah, it could essentially be like a continuous pipeline on the road. So for most like roads and infrastructure of that sort, currently we use in the U.S. rock salts and glycol-based solutions. The issue with that is that it's just really expensive and it's also really bad for the environment. And so we're using a non-corrosive biodegradable pet and plant safe de-icing fluid, which part of our goal is to really create the most eco-friendly de-icer on the market and distribute it widely. And the de-icers actually been on the market for a long time, but it's just more expensive than rock salts and glycol-based solutions. But if we can time this accordingly, rather than just sprinkling this everywhere four days before a snowstorm and then just spraying at random periods of time, like if we can precisely actually determine when to deposit these things using online data as well as IoT sensors, we can make a far more precise delivery of this de-icer and use it a lot more economically as well as a lot more eco-friendly. Well, that's a, a fabulous idea in itself because anybody who's ever been near, there's certain smells that you smell in life and you know that can't be good for you. And being on a plane as it's being de-iced, I feel like is one of those things where yeah. that smell that everybody knows, you just feel like this this is probably harming me in some way slash the environment <laughs> slash anybody who lives within a 10 mile radius of the airport in some way. So do you think that one of the strides you've made here in this de-icing solution is that maybe we could be improving how de-icing happens on things, just like spraying it on planes or various other things? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, our goal ultimately is to really try to revolutionize the de-icing industry for the 21st century. So not we're starting with buildings, but not just end up in buildings. So do, again, like roads, runways, train lines, planes, everything, you name it. And I think this is becoming increasingly apparent now also just with climate change, where everyone thinks that climate change is the climate warming up, which of course it is. But in the process, you also have these Arctic winds and like winter vortices that we've been seeing the last few years where 
places that never had ice and snow before, like Texas or Oregon, are now starting to have these crazy snowstorms. And they're just totally not prepared for this. And I think there's a real opportunity there to disrupt the traditional de-icing industry with one that's intelligent, data-driven, and also autonomous. I, I have to agree. Um, so that fluid, is it as bad as I think it is? What is in that fluid today? The, not so, yours, the old one. The old ones are normally rock salts or like glycol-based solutions. They're not, they're not good is, for you. They, what they spray on planes, that's a glycol-based solution? So it actually depends for planes. Some of them are acetate-based solutions. Some of them are glycol. It depends on where you are and what they're distributing. So it can vary. Um, yeah, it, it really depends on where you are. Okay. And how many billions of tons of this stuff or gallons is just seeping into the ground beneath any airport? Yeah, it's a significant amount, actually. It's a, right. it's a real problem. And there's no real good solution right now on making a better version of that, essentially. Very interesting. So based on what you know now, do you think that it's possible to scale your solution to that? Can we produce enough of this in a time where certain minerals and elements are increasingly scarce? Yeah, I think so. It's actually a pretty simple manufacturing process. We've actually, we're actually partnered with some of the largest uh, de-icer and chemical companies in the U.S. to produce the de-icer. And our system itself can be modified for these other pieces of key infrastructure. And so we're thinking about key partnerships with some major distributors who are currently in these other adjacent verticals. And we're thinking about that very closely as we move forward with product development. That's so cool. So let's take a little bit of a change of thought here and let's talk about the schooling you went from MIT to Yale. Do you feel better about the idea of launching a company in a school environment and also versus not, let's say, and also what is the purpose that school still holds for you now in getting your degree versus just saying, okay, see you later. I'm just going to go build this and try to make millions my own way. Yeah, it's, it's a great question. I, I have a bunch of answers for this. I think, I think, School is really valuable for a number of different reasons. And I think there's a lot of value as well for folks who don't think they need it. I completely agree that's not for everybody. But I think it provides you a valuable network of folks who you can find who are like-minded, who are intelligent, who are driven, ambitious. I think the second piece of that is there's just a lot to learn from things on campus and outside of class, especially. There's just always events going on. There's like talks, there's companies coming in, just providing different ideas and really a nexus for innovation and new ideas. And I think the third piece there, so I'm currently doing my PhD, so I haven't taken classes in four years. But I think the reason why I'm finishing on my PhD is that a PhD itself is in a given topic, but it really teaches you how to think and how to develop essentially like a hypothesis-driven mindset where rather than saying, I know this is what's happening and like this is what I'm going to build off of, you're actually saying everything's a hypothesis where it's, I think I know this is going to happen. How can I test this in order to move forward with this idea and validate it or figure out I'm wrong and figure out a new approach to that? And I think that actually holds very true for startups and business in general, rather than having these essentially die hard, hard principles where you believe everything you're saying, you should go off and figure out like, how can you design a test to figure out, is this actually a right assumption? Is it not? Can we fail faster? Or can we not? And figure out what are the next steps moving on from that? That's right. I believe everything that I'm saying, and that's why I'm in a garage and you're at Yale. <laughs> <laughs> I believe every word I've ever said, I'll tell you that much. Um, but it does seem like in our culture, we do have this issue with uh, this need to know uh, at, at scale, with this need to be right all the time. That admission yeah. of being wrong is somehow bad or a sign of weakness, right? 
And what I love about like what you said is this concept that science and progress and startups and all of this, it is based on a hypothesis. And part of the fundamental premise of a hypothesis is that it can be wrong. And that recognizing yeah. that being wrong is doesn't mean that you're an idiot or that you're stupid. It just means that that premise was wrong. And it seems like in the social media YouTube era, we, we have more and more people who feel like that admitting you were wrong about something is just, uh, you cannot do that. You're not an alpha male anymore. If you ever do that, I'll, I'll give you that piece of advice. Um, so how, how have you grown, do you think, in that regard from doing this process? I've grown a lot. And I think it really is, it teaches you a lot of humility for when you're wrong, when you fail, when you have to pick right. yourself up again and figure out like, you don't know everything. And it also teaches you that you need to reach out and build your own network for people who can support you and partners who can help you along the, your journey. I think to your point earlier, there's a book I, I love that is like one of my mantras. It's called Thinking in Bets by Annie Duke. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but- Say, say again, I, what was the title again? Thinking in Bets by Thinking Annie Duke. Thinking in Bets, okay, interesting. No, I haven't heard of that or read it. So she's essentially a psychologist who's now moved into like decision theory. And she like has this whole point of, again, thinking more like a scientist than thinking in these dogmatic terms, where instead of saying, I'm sure this is the case, you can say, I think this is, I have a 60% chance that I'm right about X. And like, if, if you feel like one, like you don't have conviction yourself, that's good because then you'll go out and get more conviction. And two, like if you're speaking to someone else and that person says, I'm sure about X or I'm 60% convinced that X is true. I would believe the second person most of the time because it just it essentially conveys a level of humility that like there there is a 40% chance or what have you that they might be wrong. And I think that seems a lot more legitimate to me than someone saying, I know all the answers to these problems. Right. And the truly smart people throughout the ages have always operated in such a way. And I'm just I've just been rereading Plato's Republic, the dialogues with Socrates, supposedly. And I love that he spends an entire section arguing with this person using logic and trying to get this other person, Thrasymachus, to agree with with his point of view. And at the end of this incredibly long debate, he says, well, I still don't know what the answer is. <laughs> He spent, let's exactly. say, two hours convincing somebody incredibly, but at the end, he just freely admits, I'm still no closer to understanding. And I think that is a leap that is hard for a lot of people to make, to admit one's own ignorance. And yep. it's just something that I wish we had more of. I don't know what I'm trying to say with that. I just wish we had more of it in society at large. Yeah, I 100% agree. And it's cool because once you admit you actually don't know anything about something, then you have essentially like a full playing field to go learn about it. So instead of saying, I know about the de-icing industry, you can go off and learn about it and see what the problems are there. If I don't know anything about aviation, once you admit your ignorance, then there's plenty of people you can talk to to find out more about it. Right. And there's just so many industries out there that have incredible potential and have billions of dollars in something. I mean, I talked to somebody who's building robotics for window washing because apparently window washing on skyscrapers is an incredibly wasteful industry and apparently doing it in a more automated way. And it's you know the same thing. I can't remember so many billions of dollars a year thrown away by human window washers. And it's just all of this category of stuff that it's just a big world out there. And there are so many different ways to go in and to make money, I guess, with problems. Yeah that so you know if you have a hard time thinking about what kind of problems you might be solved let's say you have an entrepreneurial bent you want to do something but you don't know what how can one increase their ability to either recognize these problems or to find these problems if nothing has come their way yeah i, I think it first starts with just like an insatiable curiosity and i think that the best entrepreneurs are just always curious people and 
like just want to find out more. I don't know if you've read um, another one of my favorite books is Walter Isaacson's uh, biography on Leonardo da Vinci. Oh yeah, and fabulous. Yeah, such a good he's book. A personal hero of mine, assuming that he's not an alien. I still think, based on the Mona Lisa, that he might literally be an alien or a demigod <laughs> of some kind. I find <laughs> exactly. it hard to believe that he was a real person. Yeah, but, but great um, book. Great book. But I think Walter Isaacson, like several times in that book, points out how Leonardo just like kept lists and lists of things he wanted to learn about, and one of them that he repeated over and over again was. Like, I want to examine the tongue of a woodpecker. Right. And it's like, who's yes. going to look at the tongue of a right. woodpecker? <laughs> and so and I think it it's turns the, like, out that it's the same as the eddies in a stream and the curl of human exactly, hair. Exactly. Right. I mean, come on. How do you figure that out? His to do list I mean, also, it was insane. It was insane. <laughs> Dig <laughs> up a fresh like, corpse. I think a piece of that. I think you cra- like, capture a piece of that where you just say, like, what is like the tongue of the woodpecker of X industry? Like, what can I just learn more about that I'm completely ignorant about right now? And just start there and just like, there's so many folks who are just willing to talk about what they do. Like they do the same thing every single day. So if someone fresh comes to them and says, what do you do? A lot of folks are very willing to give their time, even for 15, 20 minutes or even an hour plus to just sit down and talk about what they do, what are their major problems and give you a really good sense for their industries. So how do you think people can get better at drawing connections? Because a lot of what you're talking about is drawing connections. Let's say I I look at your solution and then at some point I'm looking at something else and then I say, hey, that reminds me of something that David did. Maybe I can apply that technology to this other problem, completely opposite, completely different industry. How do you think people can nurture their sense of drawing connections between seemingly unrelated topics or ideas? Yeah, I think that's actually one of the big questions that I've been asking myself recently, because I think it's a really interesting question. I think the best innovations happen when you can like really link up and create essentially connections with things that seem completely disparate on paper. And I think there's a few ways of doing that. One, I think it's surrounding yourself with people who are completely different than you are. And I've worked in a number of different research labs. And I think the ones that have been most successful are the ones where you really bring in people from completely different backgrounds. You have like even humanists, chemical engineers, mechanical engineers, biologists, like you put them in a room together for six hours and see what they come up with. So I think just applying very different mindsets to tackle the same problem, I think will get you there. I also think it's just, again, staying curious and just learning about things that might not seem relevant on paper right now, but you you never really know when you're going to pick them up again. And so like if you see an article in The Economist about the future of tanks, like maybe it's worth just giving it a read and seeing like what they talk about there because it might be relevant for something you're thinking about two years down the line. I think another yeah. piece of that is just one of the things I've been thinking about recently is how do you just like document everything that's going on that like you're reading and consuming. I think all of us these days are like listening to podcasts and audiobooks and reading and just trying to capture all this information. And I think a lot of us take in that information and then we lose it very quickly. And so I think another key piece is figuring out a really good note-taking habit for you that works well for you to essentially jot all that information down and be able to retain it over time. Yeah, that's such a great, great, great point there. Because, yeah, we do lose it and it's easy to uh, remember a book that we just read last week, but something that we read a month ago is already gone. It's gone. Um But, yeah, it's it's those connections that I think are, are, are the most fascinating. And one of the things – it's like I use the analogy of trying to escape Earth's atmosphere, building a business uh, like a rocket trying to leave Earth's atmosphere. There's enormous pressure to go down. And obviously most startups fail. Some get farther than others. Some run out of fuel very near to outer space and some right at the ground. But it's kind of clear that there's just tons and tons of resistance. But as we go down these problem, problem rabbit holes, if you will, 
one of the things that I love about it and what you're finding out is when you keep going down it, you can find other ideas and solutions that you wouldn't have found on day one, but only four years in, you suddenly become aware of, hey, this actually applies to all of this. And that's why an Apple who has been solving the problem of what a computer should be or what a phone should be for so long, they're able to predict the future a little bit better than you are because they've had all of that time to think about what you need next on the iPhone 15, for example, right? Yep. So a lot of people who are stuck at the beginning stage, maybe most humans, they feel a world of ideas. They don't know which path to go down. It's hard for them to pick or to select or to just separate out all the noise. So, uh, But yet I feel that if one does go down a path, almost any path, they'll figure something else out down that path than they would have figured out if they'd done nothing at all. So yep. knowing that and people who are at the start, what kind of advice do you have for people who you know, to, to sort of get them down a path of some kind, yeah. a mission, I think it's, a purpose. I think it sounds very cliche, but I think it's just taking that first step. And I think to your point, like you're going to learn things on these journey, on this journey. And I think there's two ways you can approach it. One, it's like, maybe the thing that I'm working on, maybe it's not the best idea. I should pivot to something else. And just like keeping an open mind to that. And I think the second approach was, I, I think some folks unfortunately take, which is like, I know what I sought off to do two years ago was not the right decision. And I'm just going to keep going down this hole because I started it and I'm going to finish it. And you're kind of throwing good money after bad money where like, yeah, there's a right. really some, some cost, cost fallacy, fallacy here. Yeah, exactly. And so right. I think it's just keeping an open mind, like seeing what's going on. And I think, I mean, the, one of the reasons why venture capitalists often invest in second time, third time founders is because they've like gone down that rabbit hole first. They've seen like, what is actually the industry need? What are their customers need? And, they might not have found product markets fit the first time, but they've gone down they've gone down that path of discovery and they figure it out in which directions they need to go, at what things are they good at, at what things are they bad at. They figure out some self-awareness there. And they have a far better understanding and grasp of how to reach market that second time around. And the and the failures can be just so painful that you yeah. just don't want to duplicate that particular pa uh, pain point. You say I didn't ask people before I built my product what they wanted. Oops, <laughs> never doing that again. So yep. there's a lot of harsh and painful lessons out there for anybody who attempts this stuff. All right, let's switch gears completely. Let's go back to childhood. How Were you the kind of kid who always had a lemonade stand? Was being an entrepreneur something you always wanted to be, only recently wanted to be? What kind of kid were you before all this began? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I always loved the idea of business. Like I always like had like the lemonade stand, but I also loved engineering and like the idea of like building technologies that can help a really like at scale a wide variety of people across the world. Like those two ideas like always seemed exciting. And so I think tech entrepreneurship is essentially the the convergence there where you essentially are using technology to massively improve people's lives at scale. Yeah. Do you feel that tech is both our potential savior and our doom to borrow a very prescient line from Olaf and Frozen? <laughs> um, I, I definitely think that there there's potential for that. I mean, between nuclear war and geoengineering and everything that we don't know is going to happen in the future and all the sci-fi movies that predict some negative outcomes there, I think it could definitely be both our savior as well as our, our downfall. Do you think it's 50-50, like a true will they, won't they I, I don't know if I can quantify that. <laughs> I think that's a part of like, again, like trying to be like, treat all my assumptions. And like, I, I honestly just, I could not uh, put a number on that. Yeah. 
Well, I assume based on your life and what you've done that you would put yourself more in the optimist camp than the pessimist camp. I think you kind of have to be to exactly. do that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what is it about tech that so moves or inspires you? Because I feel the same way. I've always been passionate about what the future could be. I only care about thinking about the future. I very rarely care about thinking about the past. I like reading ancient philosophers and thinkers of the past, but I, I'm not a history buff as such. Uh, hmm. What is it about tech and the future that has always attracted you, do you think? Yeah, I actually, I actually love history. I'm a huge history buff, actually. Okay. That's cool. And Great, yeah. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because there's so many technologies out there that people just don't actually know about. I was reading last week actually about how, like, I don't know if you've seen those um, those vacuum tubes that like you might have seen like in like an old eighty movie Funk, where like yeah, exactly banks had them. Yeah, exactly. So sure. those were actually invented to carry people originally back in the eighteen seventies. Hey, there we go. Yes, which is I want crazy. That. Um, where like you literally, it's like basically like the hyperloop of the 1870s. Right. And Futurama had that too. Pod, yeah. You put people in a pod and you like shot them off. And right. like there's like actually a tunnel down in New York city that actually still exists that did like 400,000 rides in this thing. Get out of and here. 400,000 rides. Yeah. Yeah. Which is crazy. <laughs> so it worked. It they worked. Did this yeah. Successfully? They didn't do it at scale. They didn't do it at scale. They figured out that, uh, it'd probably be better if you do it on a smaller, smaller scale. So they put up, they did essentially did letters and like small packages, but apparently okay. in like the 1930s, like when this is like peak vacuum tube era, like someone shot yeah. a cat through one of these and sent to the vet. So oh <laughs> there were some God. interesting uses for it. At, at what speed are we talking about? Do you know, I actually don't know the answer to that, but, uh, it seemed like pretty fast actually. That's unbelievable because that's one of those technologies. I mean, riding in an airplane or a car is somewhat similar, but it's one of those technologies where if it works, that is the most awesome thing in the entire world. But the idea yeah. of getting stuck halfway in one of those tubes <laughs> yeah. would be the greatest, most horrific nightmare I could possibly imagine. Especially being 200 yards, right. Being 200 yards below ground in a tube where you can't move slowly running out of oxygen would be uh, a truly horrific fate. In my opinion, yeah, like twenty years before the light bulb was invented. Oh my lord! I'd love <laughs> yeah. to see this in action. Yeah, because why was that always in banks? Why was it so ubiquitous for a while and not anymore? But okay, so old tech can inspire you, and and people were intelligent. There, there is definitely some validity to that. Or even looking farther back at how the pyramids were made, humans have done some pretty crazy stuff. <laughs> yeah, over the exactly. Well, like years. people actually don't know that the Romans and like the ancient Egyptians actually invented steam power. Like we could have had the locomotive okay. two thousand years ago. But um, for various like socioeconomic and demographic reasons, yeah. they didn't. And I think that's like actually the really interesting part of tech. Like I have a tech background, I have a uh, engineering background. But what I find so exciting about it is that like all these technologies are developed. But there's this idea of technology determinism, where like you think that you're developing a technology and it's going to inherently become the thing you're the thing you're thinking of. Like Edison it helped invent like the video camera, and he thought essentially what's going to happen is everyone's going to have a camera at home and they can make home videos. But that took 100 years to happen. What first happened is you had essentially the rise of Hollywood and the movie studio. And like that was never something he expected. And so I think mm -hmm. being an entrepreneur, you can help craft the path of new technologies. So rather than just developing it and hope it goes well, you can really help shape that path and shape the future in a way where you can shape how it's going to really impact humanity, whether it's in a good way or in a bad way. You know, you bring up a great point of being so far ahead of the curve, because if he had judged his career based on the success of that idea, he would have died a failure, even yeah. though he was right. 
So how yeah. does one prevent being so far ahead of the curve that they die broke? <laughs> you know, the, the <laughs> Vincent van Gogh scenario <laughs> where after your death, oh, yeah, it turns out he was a genius. <laughs> but, or even Tesla. Yeah, Nikola Tesla. Great example. Right. Turns out he was right about everything. Oops. Yeah. <laughs> kind of made a mistake there. Uh, how do we be just enough ahead of the curve to be successful, but not so far to be unsuccessful? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And I don't know if there's a right answer there either. But I think it's very much just keeping in mind, like, what are the limitations of technology today? Like, people can see the potential of so many things in the future, but what is actually possible today? And can you ride that wave at the right time? So trying to develop a smartphone app back in the 1990s, like, it sounded good on paper, but there's not mobile technologies or cloud to really get it off the ground. And so really timing the market correctly and timing also consumer demands correctly. So it's not just a technology question, but are people actually ready for it? Like Google Glass failed not because of a technology question, but it was more because nobody actually knew what they were going to use it for. True. Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, yeah, there, there is that sense of, um, of the right tech for the right time. And uh, I guess, how do you feel about that for your own company now that you've done it for four and a half years? What do you think the next five years will look like in your industry? Do you feel like there will be widespread adoption of this? Do you feel that it will be relatively easy, and I, I say relatively here, to get acceptance? Or do you foresee massive hurdles at this point? Yeah, for sure. And I have, I have a couple of thoughts there. I think first, just interesting running this company because it's not like a B2B SaaS enterprise software and nothing against those. But the core issue there is just like really trying to find product market fit with like essentially understanding the customer and what their needs are. Here, like there's this whole thing where we spent the last few years essentially just developing the technology. And at this point, we can now start figuring out product market fit. So it's essentially two hurdles rather than just one. And so we've crossed one hurdle. We're actually validated technology now. And the second question is, can we reach scale and reach the sales needed in order to reach that velocity and reach that takeoff essentially? And I think that, again, like staying close to the market and really keeping our ear to the customer is the key to answer that question. And it seems like the market is moving in this direction where they're looking for more eco-friendly solutions. I think everyone is starting to become more concerned about climate change. They're looking for digital solutions rather than having guys risk their lives with rising insurance premiums and liabilities <laughs> right, and right. doing this. Like there must be a better way. And There's so I think got to be a better way. Exactly. And then we also have a significant cost savings as well compared to existing solutions. And so I think overall it's a smarter, cheaper, more eco-friendly product. And I think that that is what the market is looking for right now. And do those things, do you value those things on a personal level? Do you value eco-friendly products and solutions and all of that in general? Or would you consider yourself a businessman first and foremost? No, I, I 100% think that, uh, I think my life from here on now is going to be dedicated to climate change, whether it's in this company or the next. And the reason why I say that is that, like, I actually started off my career in, like, medical technologies. And while I find medical technologies really interesting... We're at a point where medical technologies now, the four leading causes of death, and the reason why the, essentially the average age of the U.S. is actually decreasing now is not because of technologies anymore. For a very long time, it was increasing because technologies were working well. But at this point, the leading causes of death in America are depression, opioids, obesity, and COVID. And we have solutions for all of those. It's a question of can we get those solutions out there at scale? And those are questions for politics and policy and society at large. But it's not a question of technology anymore. But if we stopped innovating in climate change today 
in 100 years from now, we'd be in a very, very bad place. And so while there are, of course, terrible issues out there with healthcare and terrible diseases out there that have yet to be solved, like cancer and Alzheimer's, we're at a pretty good place from a human life expectancy standpoint, where if nothing changed in 100 years, we'd still be in a pretty good place. If we change nothing in 100 years about climate change, we'd be in a far worse place than we are right now. I'm completely with you, and I've basically dedicated my life towards the same. Um, it's just that thing. It's like, when is everybody else going to start talking about this? No, not yet. Okay, we'll keep going. Yet, <laughs> next exactly. year, the year after that, yeah. everybody's <laughs> going to catch up sooner or later. Yeah, we're all so. going to figure it out. Well, they're going to have to, I think. And in one of my talks fairly recently, I talked about the energy bills here in the state of California being so high. And one of the comments was, I can't imagine that. And then I was talking to the woman who I interviewed after, Susan Stone, um, and she said, well, everybody will be able to imagine that real soon <laughs> because <laughs> they're going up everywhere. It's not just, maybe we're on the leading edge of it, but gas prices, energy prices, all of these things that are also impacted in your industry, everybody's exactly. going to start feeling that as gas bills double and triple and quadruple and energy bills double and triple and quadruple. So whether you're starting at 100 a month or 900 a month, you'll get there soon, much higher. So yeah. I agree that we have to be um, to be ahead of the curve. So you've clearly got a greater mission in mind and you clearly have a principle that I would imagine is beyond just making a ton of money. Am I accurate in saying that? Yeah, I would definitely say that. Okay, right. So you've got a greater mission, which is the most interesting thing for me uh, in terms of the people that I like to talk to and, and listen to. How do you feel about this notion, which is something that we are now discovering in our society, not to get too much into politics on this, but if you ask a lot of people, what would your dream be? What would you like to contribute? They'll say, I would love to, my ultimate dream would be to create a cure for cancer. That's something every kid can say. I'd love to create a cure for cancer. It just strikes me as so funny that nobody could have imagined there's this woman who creates the mRNA vaccine, a breakthrough vaccine technology, and it works. And in record time, and it applies to COVID and it works. This woman is not the greatest hero of the world. Should she not be celebrated just at an enormous scale? Like, why is LeBron James more celebrated than that woman? And then instead no. of the world cheering her on, there's hatred and animosity you come with this so i have my serious doubts whether the person who actually does cure cancer will be celebrated or hated so yeah. how does one keep yeah. going forward knowing that those accolades may never come i think it's an intrinsic motivation and i think it's also like knowing you did the right thing and keeping yourself motivated that way history repeats itself fairly often unfortunately like if you go back to the 1920s pandemic there were signs everywhere saying like no mass mandates and we're back in the same place right. now. There was, right, exactly, yeah. Exactly, like there was a Supreme Court lawsuit back in 1905 against vaccines. Like we've kind of come full circle in a way that I think folks don't often appreciate. But right. I think again, it's like, if you're that woman, like you changed the world and you saved right. country millions of lives and right. really made a profound impact on, on, on the planet and on human health. And I think that like, whether you're her or Dr. Fauci or someone else, not to get too political, right. I think that like, you know, in your heart that you did the right thing. And I think that's really what matters. And it does seem that this path, particularly the social entrepreneurship path, is one of embracing philosophy on a deep level, because one has to make peace with those kinds of things at the outset and say, this is my priority and this is OK. And if given the choice between making an extra billion dollars and having a comfortable life but making a difference, one has to choose that second path, I think. 
And yeah. that is a narrative that I'm very interested in and that I hope becomes more widespread. And my purpose of doing this show is to help people start thinking along those lines, if I can, in some tiny way, convince somebody that maybe the thing that makes the most money isn't necessarily the best idea, even though money is important. We all need money to live. We all want to be more successful. We want to take care of our families and all of that. Might yep. there be another reason to live than just making the most money? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, it's very true. And I like I know friends and I have a lot of colleagues who have been, I think, asking these, themselves these questions these days. And like a lot of folks are switching jobs. I was reading an article recently about how folks are like leaving like Exxon and like leaving BP yeah. and leaving these companies that are just not moving fast enough on climate change and going to like work, like go work in a climate tech startup or something at scale because they have real industry knowledge and they have a real expertise in the energy industry. And that can be translated over very well to helping the new age digital green economy. And so I think there's a lot of differences that people can make in, in the world and have an impact on really at scale on people's lives. And I think if you have those skills, I'm sure you do in some way or another, you can use those to make a profound difference on the planet. Yep. Completely, completely agree. And I think it's up to every one of us to figure out what the best way that we can contribute is. And it's different. Yeah. Like you said, some people are engineers, some people talk, some people think, some people do all kinds of different things. But if everybody figures out what the best thing that they can contribute is and then goes all in on that, my assumption is that they'll be happier. It's the gamble that I've personally made. Whether it pays off or not is <laughs> remains to be seen. But yeah. I do believe it. I do believe it, and I, I also believe that the internal intrinsic motivation is going to be the most important thing. I always just think about myself on my own deathbed. What am I going to wish that I had done? What would I regret not having done? And, of course, fighting for the enemy or just being on the wrong side of history, as it were. That's a pretty big thing that I'm afraid of. Yeah. Very much don't want that. Yeah. Like, oh, it turns out I made everything worse in my <laughs> time on this planet. Oops. Um, yeah. All right, yeah. so four, four and a half years in, what has been the biggest challenge? What's been the hardest thing so far? I think it was really getting that pilot off the ground because there were so many headwinds going into this. Like we were manufacturing some pieces in China and then the pandemic happened there. And so we couldn't get a lot of stuff out. And then the pandemic happened here and we had COVID lockdowns. And like a lot of folks were focused on HVAC rather than focusing on like building, building envelope at that point. And like our team was basically spread around the country and we were sending things basically by UPS to get basic engineering done. And so there were just so many headwinds and it was always going to be far easier to just say like, that's it, we're done. But I think really gathering the team together, like really putting an effort in, like really talking about the impact we can have for the customer, that really made all the difference. Like saying, this is where we're going. This is why we're heading there. This is the gold star. Can we achieve that? And, really staying close to that vision and mission is like what really pulled us through during those difficult times. Yeah. How do you feel about your team and working with them now? I, I, I'm very, very grateful to have found such strong folks to work with who have complementary skills and backgrounds and like who challenge me often and I'm often wrong. And it's great to be proven when I'm wrong and have someone on the team who knows the right answer. And so like, it's great to well, like one have folks who, are like willing to tell you that you're wrong and also find you the correct path moving forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It must be a little bit better than working for some faceless corporation. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. I'm not sure. Uh, 
But anyways, you know, it's been an absolute joy to get to know you. You're clearly a very intelligent person. Obviously, MIT and Yale thought so, and those are little-known institutions in much of the world with a pretty <laughs> low bar for acceptance. Um, you know, it's not Harvard, but hey. Yeah, exactly. What is? Uh, just kidding. I didn't go to Harvard. I wish I did, so that I could look down on Yale people. That's my like my one regret in life is that I didn't go to Harvard so that I could look down on Yaleys, but, but I didn't, so who am I? Um, but it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you and to get to know you on some of this stuff. Uh, so I guess now we're sort of at this place where we can sum it all up. Uh, for anybody who is the younger version of yourself, again, like what, what, what would be that one piece of advice or what is the one thing you would say to somebody knowing what you know now? Do it, don't do it, whatever you like to say. Yeah, I think really it's just staying open to yourself. Like one, knowing yourself and like understanding like who you are, like what are your core values? Like is going down this career path that you've, looked upon because maybe there's financial incentives or like there's prestige involved. Like, is that really like, I mean, maybe that is, but is that really who you are? And two, just keep an open mind because once you know who you are, there are going to be opportunities everywhere. They're going to pop up whether you expect them or not. So even if they don't fit in a 10 year plan, just keep an open mind to them because they may open opportunities and new avenues you've never thought about, but it could ultimately be very fruitful and very fulfilling. Well, that's a fabulous way to wrap it up. So I think we will. Uh, can you please just give a little bit of promo, anything you want to promote, close us out, website, whatever. How can people find you and support you? Yeah, I would love for folks to reach out if you're interested or if you have uh, had ISIMS in the past and will want to learn more. Our website is flowsafe, F-L-O-E, safe.com. Uh, we'd love to see you there. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure, David. Thank you so much for joining me and for your time. And with that, uh, the official podcast is over. Thanks again for listening to another episode of the Beat the Often Path podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode or any of the episodes we've shared, it would mean a great deal to me if you subscribe to the podcast on your platform of choice or on YouTube. And of course, if you shared either the show itself or this particular episode with somebody who might want to hear it to help us grow the audience for the show, I would greatly, greatly appreciate it. So if you've been a passive listener all this time, I get it. I understand. There's no big deal with that. But it would really, really mean a lot to me if you'd leave a positive review and help me grow this show. So thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next time.